Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. And we're happy to welcome back to the show veteran Young Voices contributor, Caleb France. Hi, Caleb. How are things? I'm doing well, Brian. How are you? Doing fantastic. I guess it's it's probably fate that uh, you and I would connect on Patriots Day. <laughs> Because right. you are the host of a podcast called Profiles in Liberty. And uh, for those who aren't familiar with it, maybe bring us up to speed on on what the podcast, you know, where, where it uh, originated and, and what you're doing with that podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, thank you for, for having me on to, to speak about this. My show is called Profiles in Liberty, and it is a... Uh, a history show, uh, a history podcast where I dive into some of my uh, some of the people who I've uh, sort of been inspired by for a long time um, and have wanted to elevate them and kind of tell their story. For one, if if it has not been a story that has been well told, I want to elevate that and show people exactly who they were. And two, if they're uh, someone who might be well known. Um, I want to provide some nuance to those individuals and, and show exactly um, exactly who they were. So in the first season, I had the signers of the Declaration of Independence. I plucked uh, eight signers of the Declaration of Independence out to uh, highlight their stories. And in season two, which I just wrapped up, uh, it has been dubbed the Equalizers. And it's all about those individuals who fulfilled that promise of uh, the Declaration of Independence in 1776. So I got to ask you this, Caleb, because you're dealing with history. And uh, I, I don't know if this has always been the case, but it turns out history can be kind of controversial. I mean, we live in a time where there are people who are actively lobbying, change the name of that street, change the name of that school, tear down that statue, because apparently... There are some aspects of history that they they just don't want people either talking about or acknowledging. What is your take on this? Why why should we study history, and and is it dangerous to try to erase inconvenient parts of history? Yeah, I uh, you know I got to say, Brian, um, that is something that uh, concerns me, and it is something that sort of inspired the creation of this of this program and of the show. Um, I think that that we need heroes to look up to. I think that we need people to be able to be inspired by and to see them for who they were, not as these deities or as these uh, epic uh, myths of, of, of titans and glory, um, but as people, the same as you and I, uh, and trying to figure out exactly how they overcame some of their struggles um, you know, I, I saw an interview recently about uh, about telling the difference between what makes a hero versus what makes a villain. <laughs> and really it is is just how they react to uh, certain situations, their choices that they make. Um, sometimes they make mistakes, but ultimately it's the choice to do what's right above what's wrong is what really separates those uh, those two. And I think that there are plenty of those types of individuals. Uh, scattered all throughout our history that have constantly uh, made the choice to choose freedom above uh, either slavery or oppression or tyranny. And I think that is worth celebrating. 
When it comes to studying history, give me your best take on how a person can go about it and and not be entirely dependent on someone else saying, well, this is what I think, you know, Thomas Jefferson, man, or this is, you know, in other words, how can a person get a clearer view of what was actually going on historically? Since there are a lot of people out there who comment on what they think was going on or maybe even revise it, but it doesn't always square with what actually took place. Yeah, I think a lot of people uh, tend to look for confirmation bias whenever they are going through uh, going through uh, history, whether it be the American Revolution, whether it be the Civil War, or whether it be um, somewhere else throughout the world at another point in time in history. Uh, a lot of it is through the lens of not necessarily objectively looking for the truth of the matter, um, but uh, rather trying to find what uh, confirms their own uh, predetermined notions of, of what they want to find. Um, and being able to find, uh, being able to cut that out and being able to find what what the actual story is, I just think makes for so much more of a rich uh, experience whenever um, I'm going through history and, and, and pulling together these stories for, for my show. Um, I'm always uh, constantly blown away by just how much I didn't know about the story or the full picture. Um, and it just makes for that much more of a rewarding experience. And, and hopefully the, the listeners can uh, can see that uh, as they as they listen as well. It seems like there's also some danger in um, simply relying on what other people are saying. Now, I'm not trying to say that all textbooks are, you know, something you can't trust but let's face it whoever's cutting the check for for whoever's writing that textbook you know I, it's probably a good bet that uh, the content in that textbook is going to look favorably upon whoever is currently in power <laughs> and you know cutting the checks yeah yeah absolutely i think um i i think that there are a lot of people uh, currently um and this is, is sort of the the dangers that uh people like thomas jefferson or james madison sort of warned about are the gatekeepers, those who have all of this knowledge and, and refuse to give it up without going through them first, whereas these individuals believed in the diffusion of knowledge. Um, and and there can be some challenges that come up from that uh, as well, certainly. But at the end of the day, um, the, the truth of the matter really is safer in the hands of the diffusion of knowledge. Uh, and I, I think that is really the best way forward, that if you want to, to get to the, the roots of it, it's pretty easy, I think. Sometimes it's challenging, but most times it's pretty easy to find um, what makes sense and, and what is the truth versus what's just someone opining uh, in, in some sort of article or, or textbook or, or whatnot. And I think there's there's also the the advantage of having hindsight to look at events. For instance, today is Patriots yes, Day, yes. celebrating April nineteenth, seventeen seventy five. The shot heard round the world. This is when you know the battle took place at Concord and Lexington. And you know, to to us, you know, for those of us who who live in America, we're like, well, yes, that was you know that was the birth of American freedom. That's that's the day the American Republic was born. To the British, it was like, no, that's the day those to- those terrorists you know, um, started shooting at our, our His Majesty's troops, and so there are different perspectives. And you know, how how do you get a good, well-rounded view that doesn't get you know pulled into one ideological side or the other? You know, I think those perspectives, um, when when studying right, when studying history right, uh, I, I do think those perspectives um, can enrich. 
the original uh, the original line of thinking, or it can completely refute that original line of thinking. Uh, but I think what is important to do is to make sure that uh, that you're not trying to. Uh, go out of your way to to uh, to try to fill up uh, exactly what it is that you believe, and just to let the facts fall where they may. Does that take courage? It does. It it takes uh, it takes a, a courage and humility. Uh, I think uh, for a lot of people, uh, and it it takes a lot to bite the bullet and say that I was I was wrong on fill in the blank. Um, but uh, the more that we're able to do that. Uh, the more that we're able to see just how incredible our story as Americans uh, and the story of freedom uh, can truly be. Let's talk a little bit about your profiles in Liberty podcast. Now, you mentioned you're what? Are you three seasons in now? I am working on the uh, I'm, I'm working on the third season currently. Uh, I've started writing the scripts for it. We have uh, season one and season two. Uh, is completely uh, ready for for listening. So if anyone wants to go check it out, um, we have 16 episodes currently available. And and just to to give the listener an idea of the kind of work that goes into putting these episodes together, this is this isn't just Caleb sits down and off the top of his head says, "Here's what I think about you know this given figure." Talk to me a little bit about the kind of research that goes into it, and, and if anything, what what surprises you as you're doing that research. There is there is several several months uh, that go into uh, into each episode. A lot of preparation, um, a lot of script writing, uh, and a lot of fact checking. A lot of times, it's it's cross referencing and researching to make sure that I have uh, all my T's do- uh, crossed and I's dotted, and make sure that I am presenting the information the way that it's supposed to be presented. Uh, and at the end of the day. At least for me, it I, it makes for just that much more of an enriching experience, um, and it's something that I have received feedback from that uh, it, it seems like that is something that a lot of other people uh, seem to agree with. So it, it's very time-consuming and, and tedious, but it's very worth it. Okay, let's talk about where people can uh, subscribe to this podcast. Absolutely. You can go and subscribe wherever you get your podcast, Apple, Spotify, wherever that may be. Uh, the show is called Profiles in Liberty, um, and season three is coming out right around the corner. Okay. We'll actually include in the show notes for, for this program a link to your uh, Apple podcasts uh, link to, to your show. Caleb, great to talk with you. As always, keep up the good work, and where can people find you on social media? Yeah, you can find me at Caleb Franz. It's pretty simple uh, on Twitter, at Caleb Franz. All right. Thank you very much. We'll be back. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We are pleased to welcome Elise Amidro. She's a health policy manager in Washington, D.C. and a Young Voices contributor. And I think you probably wear a couple of other hats as well, don't you, Elise? Yeah, a few. <laughs> I'm uh, quite involved in, in things around the, the around town. 
I'm very happy to have you on the program here, especially to talk about uh, when no news is good news as it relates to uh, to healthcare and government involvement in healthcare. Um, talk to me a little bit about uh, about what the the Biden administration has been proposing to do in terms of health care. And then, and then this article in National Review that you wrote points out that the Biden administration hasn't been able to accomplish much, but that's not really such a bad thing. Why is that? That's correct. And, and in my article, I talk specifically about the new budget, that the budget proposal for 2023. So ever since uh, Biden started campaigning and then once he became president, he's been proposing a variety of policy solutions for health care. And I think everyone agrees that healthcare is too expensive and there are many reforms that are much needed. So props to him for, for identifying that issue and wanting to do something about it. Now, the proposals that we've seen over the past couple of years now are not quite what we want to see because they actually are quite counterproductive um, and with the best intentions. So one of them would have been to lower the Medicare age of eligibility from 65 to 60 years old. Um, and what it does, it's it's good for people who are 60 to 65, but it's fiscally just untenable. And and proposals like these were not included in the uh, the proposed budget for 2023. There were other proposals in there, um, mental health uh, improvements and and other like funding of science from the government for um, for biomedical research, but nothing in the way of of implementing the big proposals that he had been. Um, towing around. Elise, you make a very strong case in your article that uh, when government gets involved in in solving health care problems, sometimes it doesn't work out as planned. And in particular, you refer to something that uh, folks who were paying attention, uh, you know, 10 years or 12 years ago will remember um, the Obamacare um, proposals. And, and explain to us, how did that shake out? What On what basis was Obamacare sold to the American public? How has it worked out since its implementation? So back when then-candidate Obama campaigned, on the campaign trail, he said, when I'm president, you will see your health care costs go down by $2,500 a year for a family of four. And what we've seen is about a tripling or a quadrupling of those health care costs since Obamacare was passed. Um, and just in terms of per capita spending, we're looking at well over $3,000 extra per person between 2008 and and 2020 in constant dollars. So we've seen an explosion of costs. So, and, and in addition to that, we are also seeing plans that are not all that helpful for people who are, co- who are covered by the Obamacare plans that were touted by um, the proponents of Obamacare. So those plans may be very cheap per, per month. You might have a low premium. Sometimes they're even free. But they have extremely high deductibles. In fact, the cheapest plans, the cheapest type of plan has uh, has a deductible of $7,000. What that means is you have insurance once you've spent $7,000 on wow. your care in a single year. Most people in America don't have $7,000 just hanging on their shelf, uh, just waiting waiting to be spent on, on an emergency at the, at the ER or, or on an expensive um, type of drug. So that's a problem, too. So I don't think those solutions have really solved much for Americans. And um, they've, they've just served to give people a sense of comfort, only to realize that they're not covered at all. 
And something you point out in your article is, you know, government calls these investments. And, and I think we can all agree why we're investing in, you know, more affordable health care. And yet you point out those investments are, are well, could I get you to expand? When they say investments, it doesn't necessarily mean investment in the way that most people would understand it. Now, does it? Absolutely. An investment, normally, when you invest in something, is you expect to get a return out of it. But you spend something and you get more in the future. Here, um, the administration was proud of its investments in, in Obamacare exchange plans during the pandemic. So what it did is it tried to get more people to enroll into those plans during the pandemic because people lost their jobs. They usually have insurance through their jobs. So the idea was let's give people another option and let's pay for it through, through taxpayer dollars. Lots of people enrolled. Like uh, It jumped by 21%. We have 14 extra million people added to those plans. But again, those plans are not all that sustainable. As it turns out, actually, um, some of those plans didn't go to people who actually needed them. They're supposed to be for low-income people, but um, under the new rules, there are people who are extremely, like not just middle class, but actually upper middle class who are eligible for those plans. So we're giving those tax dollars, those investments from taxpayers, and giving them to people who don't even need them to buy plans that are actually not reliable once you actually need to use the, the ER or needs, need to go to the doctor. I mean, on the one hand, I can understand why politicians would would offer this because it's going to buy brownie points. People, you know, voters are going to respond. I think you mentioned in your article, um, even with those incredible, you know, increased costs under the Affordable Care Act from Obama, Democrats still largely support it. But let's let's talk about what would happen if the free market were allowed to to address those costs. Would, would government first have to get out of the way in order for that to happen? Yes, Brian, you're right. <laughs> we should we should hope for the government to, to play less of a role. The, the reason why we don't have a free market system is that the government has decided long ago in the 60s that we needed to have Medicare and Medicaid and to pay for, for health care through government dollars. And that's just led to a spike in, in costs and not even full coverage. So instead, what we should have is let people have those dollars in their pocket, not not give them through those those government plans, but instead have them, you know, be empowered to make their own healthcare decisions. You want to have a different type of healthcare plan? Go for it. There are new types of, of plans that exist where you have a subscription to a doctor, right? It's called direct primary care, where you get to go and see your doctor, you know, as often as you want, like a Netflix sub- subscription where you pay a monthly fee and that's what you get to do. Those are sometimes a much better fit for a family than just having a $7,000 deductible uh, that prevents you from receiving any care. And we do that by having um, less government intrusion, dollars that are not going to insurance companies or to um, you know, subsidies to large corporations, um, but instead to, pop to people directly who can then make those decisions themselves. Elise, talk to me about what this would do for employers as well. If we put patients in the driver's seat, let them make their own decisions, what does that do for employers who currently are in the process or are required rather to to find and offer, you know, a certain amount of, you know, health plans to their employees? Absolutely. So that's that's a huge issue because small employers especially struggle to offer health health plans to their employees because it's a very high upfront cost. They're looking at anywhere from eight to $20,000 per employee for insurance. And uh, for the employees, the problem is they can't change jobs because they rely on this insurance as well. So the reason employers do that is because they have a tax um, benefit. They don't, they're tax exempt for the dollars that they spend on healthcare. 
But instead, I think those exemptions should go to people directly. Why not? If you have if you have insurance, you should be able to take it to a different job. That would make it more flexible for you to find a new job. That would make it easier for an employer, especially a small employer, to bring on a new person or to expand their team and not be restricted by um, the fact that they now have to offer them this huge benefit package that they simply can't afford. I love what you're suggesting here, but I have to wonder, where is the resistance to, to that kind of change coming from? Is it uh, special medical interests that are special interests, or is it Congress itself? Who, who doesn't want to see this? Well, I think Congress has its hands tied. There's a lot of money in healthcare that goes to, to Congress in a way, but I do, I do agree. I think it's special interests that make it quite difficult um, the current, the incumbents benefit from the system tremendously. We have insurance companies that get a lot of money from the government to take care of patients through Medicare and Medicaid. And, and they obviously also benefit from the employer-sponsored model. So all of these are really standing in the way. And there's a lot of fear about any changes to the status quo because uh, who knows what would ha- happen to those, to those companies. Maybe they would have to compete and offer better for, for less. All right. We are talking with Elise Ahmedro. She is a health policy manager in Washington, D.C. She's a Young Voices contributor. Where can people find you on social media? Uh, I'm actually on LinkedIn. Uh, my name is Elise, E-L-I-S-E, and my last name A-M-E-Z hyphen D-R-O-Z. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. And we are happy to welcome back a veteran of this program, Eric Peterson. He is joining us as a Young Voices contributor. And Eric, you're also with the Pelican Institute in Louisiana. How are you doing today? Uh, it is good. I am happy uh, to be this far down south and avoiding most of the snow that our northern <laughs> neighbors are getting. Uh, it's a good time to be in the swamp. I'm, I'm feeling like you may be rubbing it in just a little bit, but that's okay. Come summertime, you and I should talk again, and we'll <laughs> see if, right. I can, if I can rub in. Hey, it sure is nice to not have that humidity. Hey, I'm, I'm looking at an article that you have written for thecentersquare.com about how filtering bills won't solve problems. And I have to admit, I know you follow this because you are very tied into technology issues. This has not been on my radar screen, but I'm thinking it probably should be. What do we mean when we talk about filtering bills? Yeah. So last year, uh, Utah passed uh, a piece of legislation um, that said that any device on it had to have a certain sort of filtering uh, content on it to make sure that children were not uh, inadvertently exposed to materials that a a parent might be uh, worried about. Uh, This obviously created a a big problem because a state passing a bill like this, dealing with devices that go to all across the United States and and all across the world um, was going to be an issue. So they had a provision in the bill that this uh, bill would only take effect if five other states passed it. And so a variety of other states um, also introduced this lesson, this legislation this session uh, as the state uh, sessions are winding down. Um, thankfully, many of them haven't passed, but uh, it's something that's definitely on like the tech policy radar going forward. All right. Now, on the one hand, I can see where most people's knee-jerk reaction is going to be, oh, it protects the children. Well, that must be a good thing. However, you point out in your article that this creates some practical as well as constitutional issues. What are those? 
Yeah, I, I think the biggest issue is that any time that you're you're writing a piece of legislation and trying to define uh, content that is harmful for a minor, it's just impossible to do so in any sort of precise fashion, right? You know, if you took ten people and put them in a room, um, they wouldn't agree on the definition, and uh, you know, trying to do so through legal language. Even our Supreme Court has has really uh, struggled over this issue, right? And so, trying to put that into a law and then saying that a company has to come up with a a product that is essentially perfect at filtering out whatever you mean lawmaker by this sort of material um, just isn't going to work very well. And I, I think the big concern that we have is obviously, you know, the, the dish, the issue with parents and children and uh, being exposed to things online is, is a real issue is that if you create something like this and it doesn't work how you think, um, you know, it's going to make parents feel secure that technology has solved this problem. Um, and then it turns out it doesn't work very well. Uh, and, you know, you might be in a worse place than if you never created it in the first place. Well, it, it seems like a perfect example of the one size fits all approach. It's well intended, but uh, but reality is is usually never that clear cut, is it? I think that's right. And, you know, there's a variety of companies that are taking a, a step at this, right? Um, whether it's, you know, your device manufacturer, like your iPhone, your Android, your tablet, or your computer, um, they all have sort of different systems for, for parents to really monitor what kids are doing online, whether it's screen time limits, whether it's um, seeing what they're purchasing or what websites they're going to. And I think that this sort of approach, uh, does a lot more because it requires parents to be active uh, in this. And yeah, it's, it's going to be more work for parents. But if you're really concerned about what your children are doing online, just like anything, like who they might go play with uh, down the street, it's going to take some active supervision by parents. Okay. So are, are there, are there any, I don't know, wise or common sense alternatives to this that are being offered? You mentioned there's at least five States that have been considering this. Is anybody, promoting or, pr- or proposing something that, uh, that might do the job without uh, trying that uh, one-size-fits-all approach? Yeah, I think there's been a lot more concern around the country and in Congress about um, children being online. I think some of those are, are a little overblown, um, but I am sort of optimistic dealing with uh, children's privacy online. Um, I think that's something that you know a lot of people can get a- around. I think you can write uh, pretty sensible rules for children to make sure that their data isn't getting out and being used in, in inappropriate ways. Um, so I'm hopeful that lawmakers will take a really good look at that and then just you know continue to, to make their voices heard with these companies, right? At the end of the day, um, these companies want to sell uh, devices and, you know, they're going to try to sell them to parents because parents are the people who have enough money to buy them for their children. And so if parents don't feel like they're providing them the features that they need to keep their children safe, that they won't buy them or they'll go to somebody who does offer those features. And so I, I think, um, you know, between dealing with sort of online privacy broadly for children um, and parents continuing to make their voices heard to these companies about the things that they want that will make them feel comfortable purchasing these things, um, you you can really make some strong headway. Maybe I'm being too harsh in how I characterize this, but it sounds a lot like there are plenty of parents who would like to outsource that uh, that kind of stewardship over their child's online interaction to somebody else. Can't somebody just come up with a fix so that I don't have to be bothered with it? Because I can see where it would be time consuming, but still, I, I think it should be their prime, their priority um, primarily. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't, you know, want to blame parents particularly, but I think politicians definitely have an incentive to, you know, go and say, "Hey, parents, I fixed this issue for you. Now you don't have to worry about this at all. Look at how how great I am, and and we've created this great solution." Um, in reality, you know, we talked about a little earlier. I don't think it's going to solve their problem, uh, but I think they might like the sound bit, sound bit for saying it. But you know, like you said, the, at the end of the day, it's going to come down to uh, parents making their voices heard, parents working with these technology companies, because, again, they're the consumers of them. And ultimately, the parent's relationship with the child when it comes to technology is the most important one, not the government's relationship with the parent and the child. I know in your article, you mentioned that education and innovation are the way forward with these kinds of tech challenges, not just throwing laws at it. Um, are there are there any examples of uh, either education or, or innovation that you see on the horizon that uh, could help to this end? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I think, um, you know, you're starting to see a lot of um, phone manufacturers, right? Because uh, parents want kids to have cell phones because they want them to be able to call in, uh, but they don't want something that has the ability to, you know, surf the web and do everything. And I think there's been some really great products that have come out over the years that uh, provide the the sort of safety blanket for, for a parent and a child to be able to communicate well, when that child is traveling or not in the house, um, but really restricts it who they're able to talk to, who they're able to communicate with, what websites or apps they're able to go on. Uh, and, you know, we're even seeing a lot of popular apps, uh, rural out kids versions, right? I'm very ha- happy with YouTube kids, uh, especially when I'm flying and the little two-year-old next to me is busy with watching Baby Shark for, for two hours and as uh, <laughs> a, a happy camper. This is a this is a big improvement, I think. Hopefully watching it with headphones on so you don't have that song stuck in your head for the next two hours. Absolutely. I, I don't know that it's a great innovation for the parents uh, who uh, who has listened to it for the thousandth time, but uh, you know, for me, it's great. Okay. Um, any other things technology or technology-wise that you see on the horizon that uh, you would consider um, noteworthy or encourage people to, to keep an eye on? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm sure your your uh, listeners have seen Elon Musk uh, proposal to buy Twitter. Uh, I, I think this is something to definitely keep your eye on for a few different ways. Uh, whether or not he's able to successfully buy it or not, uh, I think is a very much open air question. But um, I think it's really shifting the paradigm about how we think about these sort of large social uh, media platforms. Um, and I would also say, you know, keep an eye on a lot of the stuff going on um, with cryptocurrency and some of the new websites that are being built out of that that I think are going to be real competitors coming down the uh, the pipeline. I mean, we're seeing billions of dollars invested into some of these projects. And um, I think in four or five years, we'll see some really good competitors to a lot of the companies that uh, your listeners know very well right now. Okay, so, since we've got a couple of minutes and since you mentioned Elon Musk, um Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, Twitter as as a, a platform for free speech. I look, I, I'm not emotionally invested. I, I lurk on Twitter, but I don't post a ton of content. But I find that there are some very useful voices out there uh, from whom I, I really feel like I'm getting a, a little bit better, more well-rounded view of the world. Um, talk to me about uh, what kind of responsibility Twitter has, in your opinion, to, to be a marketplace of ideas versus to moderate content, to, you know, in the interest of protecting society from dangerous ideas. Yeah, I, th- I think you hit on the the two kind of competing opinions of Twitter, and I would disagree with both of them. I think Twitter's uh, job is to serve the users of Twitter, right? They want to come up with new features and keep them on there, as opposed to going to one of the you know many other places where people can communicate and share ideas. Um, 
uh, you know, I think you, part of the reason you see such a big freakout on Twitter about Twitter is because the people who are on there are very uh, tend to be very invested in it. And, uh, you know, they've been arguing on Twitter about how it should be moderated for a long time. It's kind of all out in the open. So, um, you know, Musk, I think buying it sort of threatens that uh ecosystem that they built up and might build something else. Um, I would just say that, you know, Twitter's users have stagnated. They're stuck at 300 or so million dollars. They're not bringing in more revenue. So, um, you know, from an investment perspective, they're not growing. And, uh, you know, it might be time to disrupt Twitter and see if it can become a more competitive social network. We've got about 30 seconds here. Can can Elon Musk pull it off? You know, that that's going to be the real question. It's clear that the board does not want to have him do that. Um, but, you know, he has got the potential to tank the stock, though it turns out none of the board members own a lot of stock in Twitter. Uh, you know, you're talking about some real, some really weird incentives going on here, but uh, at, at minimum, he's pulled the curtain back. All right, Eric, it's great to visit with you again. Where can people find you on social media? Uh, they can find me at Eric underscore Peterson underscore on Twitter or at pelicanpolicy.org. Welcome you back to our final segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Gary Frankel back to the show. And uh, in addition to being a Young Voices contributor, uh, Gary, tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself and what you do. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again for having me on, Brian. So I am a graduate student at Texas A&M's Bush, Bush School of Government and Public Service, studying education policy and management. And aside from my work at Young Voices, I'm also the breaking news reporter for Chalkboard Review, and I frequently write for the Reimagine Ed blog. Well, I'm looking at uh, a recent article that you've uh, published on uh, Chalkboard Review about uh, Austin School District's awful mid-semester reading scores. And there there was a a line in here that just absolutely blew me away. And it is evidently the ability to read is not included in the definition of one's authentic self. And I went, okay, I want to know more. Talk to me about what's at issue here and uh, and what can we learn from these these horrific reading scores? Yeah, um, obviously, if you've paid attention to the news at all, you'll see numerous examples of public school districts around the country going completely woke one way or another. And uh, Austin ISD is most certainly uh, no exception. A couple weeks ago, uh, Austin ISD made viral headlines because they had a Pride Week, but it wasn't an ordinary school themed week where you know you dress up in certain clothes and then the school day doesn't really change in any meaningful way austin isd went full out they were having elementary schoolers do pride parades uh throughout their buildings on any given day they would have um restorative circles where kids were told not to tell their parents what happened in the circles. And I think most shockingly the week ended with uh, a drag show on school property that was taxpayer funded and small children were in attendance. So when you look at all of the woke activities that Austin ISD is spending money on, well, it's clear that they don't know how to budget for multiple priorities because these, these test scores are not good at all. Wow. I mean, okay. I, I try to keep an open mind as far as, well, I'm sure there are good intentions with trying to teach inclusion and acceptance and celebrating everyone. 
But if it's really coming at the expense of the primary purpose for which these schools exist, yeah, are, are there parents that are that are calling them on this? Yeah, and um, I, I wrote a similar article about this with Chalkboard a few weeks before. Um, Austin ISD is an interesting district because it serves a lot of different communities. Um, we in Texas often like to call Austin the People's Republic of Austin or <laughs> little or little San Francisco or little Portland because that's what it really tries to be. And there's this core of predominantly white hipster progressives that really drive a lot of the politics in the area. But what people don't realize about Austin is that there is a large and very traditional Hispanic community, especially in the eastern and some of the southern parts of the city. A lot of them don't speak English. They rely on their children for basic functions. And they're seeing some of the stuff that the schools are doing, and they're wondering why they're even in this country if this is the type of education that their children are receiving. So I I have seen quite a bit of anger uh, among Hispanic families in Austin, and as well as the small but existent uh, portion of people who are not progressives in Austin are also really unhappy with the direction the school district is going. Because when you think about it, the purpose of the school is to teach reading and math and other essential subjects. And Austin ISD appears to have moved those subjects uh, off the totem pole in favor of not even educational equity, but this idea of activistic gender equity, where gender means nothing at all. And and people may have, you know, honest disagreements with, well, I don't want my kid being exposed to that. But let's let's talk about what are the consequences when kids are not able to read? What are some of the consequences that follow um, from that point on? Yeah, there was a really interesting study that looked at this very issue uh, a few years ago. And for kids who are not reading at the level they need to be after third grade, and this was who the scores from Austin ISD is talking about here, it's third graders, uh, kids who aren't where they should be in terms of literacy by third grades are less likely to graduate from high school, they're less likely to go on to college, they're less likely to graduate with a college degree, and they're more likely to end up in the criminal justice system. So it's not just numbers on an Excel sheet uh, that these kinds of policies are really affecting. They're driving meaningful changes in performance and not for the better. Well, and as you point out, the Austin ISD also had stricter COVID uh, you know, uh, response than many other school districts, which adds another level of complication to, to the situation. Yeah, absolutely. These effects would have been present anyway, but they're only magnified uh, by the fact that Austin ISD was so insistent on its COVID policies for so long. Um, Texas Governor Greg Abbott mandated that schools reopen in fall 2020, but Austin ISD did everything they could to encourage kids not to come in person. They had a very robust Online, online option, which is good from a choice perspective, but in order for an online option to be viable, it has to be good. And Austin ISD's wasn't. It was haphazard and meant as a COVID protocol. And kids who did this remote learning experiment without preparation, without proper use of the internet, without all of the research that has gone into what makes virtual learning effective, Austin ISD didn't do any of that. And instead, they just went full on COVID protocol, woke paradise. 
and the the beneficiaries are all the consultants that they're hiring to develop these programs, but the ones who are hurt in the end are the kids, and and that's just unconscionable. And I hope I'm not casting aspersions by asking this, but uh, what role did the teachers' unions play in terms of like not only keeping the schools closed because of COVID, but also pushing the uh, you know inclusivity type of education? Uh, that's a very good question. And under normal circumstances, the teachers unions would have played a very extensive role. Uh, fortunately, in Texas, uh, collective bargaining by public sector unions is banned. So while the teachers unions exist, they have very little institutional power, especially in terms of guiding meaningful policy. But in a way, that makes the situation worse because this is Austin ISD all on their own. It's not like they're being hamstrung by some outside force and that they really want to do something different. This is all them. This is what they want to do. This is what they want. Now, obviously, this is going to not sit well with some people. And I'm, I'm curious, what are the what are the steps being taken to to either address this or even reverse this course? Yeah, The thing is that local control of school districts is a double-edged sword because you free the local school district from a lot of the really harmful interventions of state and federal government. But when the local school district is the one going wrong, there's very little that you can actually do about it. Um, What people can do right now is that they can push for school choice. Um, Austin has charter schools and private schools that have waiting lists a mile long because families want to get out of that school district. And we need more choice. We need more options. We need more charter schools. We need more private schools. We need more of any kind of school that's not Austin ISD. Um, So in the meantime, parents, concerned community advocates, they can... Uh, for micro schools, they can look into what options are already there and see if they can get on a wait list. And long term, I think that the Texas legislature needs to expand school choice during the next regular session in 2023. They've been slow on that for a really long time. And considering what's happening in our public schools, I think that's an unacceptable position to hold at I, this point. I know this may sound extreme to some, but uh, I, I hear the phrase, what we need is a separation of school and state. And, and and my heart tells me that's probably where we can take a lot of these agendas out of the equation. But uh, I have to ask you, Gary, is, is that realistic? Is that something that maybe generations away before enough people would consider doing such a thing? Yeah, the the inner libertarian in me is all for that. But on a on a practical level, that's, I think, at least extremely unrealistic at this point in time. I think that for the foreseeable future, millions of kids are still going to attend public schools. I attended public schools all my life, um, no matter what options are available to them. And I think policymakers and advocates should operate with the understanding that this is an option that people's going to that people are going to choose. So I think there's value in talking about public schools, making policy around public schools, um, making sure that public schools are as effective as they can be all the while still understanding that parents should have the maximum amount of choice as is feasible in our current regulatory and policy environment. I mean, several state constitutions have it enshrined that there has to be public schools of some kind, not just publicly funded education. So I don't think there's any getting rid of it. Um, Improving it is going to be really, really hard and take a really, really long time. But I think choice is probably the fastest option that we have. 
Okay, well, it'll be interesting to see if reading and literacy come back into fashion. Gary, where can people find you on social media? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at FrankelGaryan, and uh, my writing is frequently in Chalkboard Review, Reimagine Ed, and some other outlets. Thanks so much for being our guest today on Moving Forward with Young Voices. Thanks, Brian. Thank you.